Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it is an unlikely and longtime nonfiction bestseller in this country. We meet the co-author of Edible and Medicinal Plants of Canada to find out about the roots of the book and the secret behind its success. And we get some highlights from its pages as well. Investigative journalist and author Julian Scher joins me to talk about his new book, The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln. And we talk about why this country's role in the U.S. Civil War is far more complicated than we're often led to believe. Is it ever okay to ignore your email inbox altogether? Well, after a federal minister admitted to doing just that, we look into how to better manage your inbox and we get some advice on digital spring cleaning as well. But first, right around the world, belief in the value of childhood vaccines is slipping since the beginning of the pandemic. That according to a new UNICEF report. It's a cause for concern. We find out what could explain the trend. Well, we're going to start off uh, and talk a bit about COVID. And, And I'll tell you why. It's my mom's birthday today, April 27th. Uh, last year, we were away together. It was the first time we'd been able to hang out uh, on her birthday in a while. And we both got COVID. And it got me thinking back to this day in 2020, when it was really the first big occasion in my family that we couldn't celebrate together because we were all at home because uh, because of really because of lockdowns and so forth uh, around COVID. So I was looking around today. I was like, what's going on with COVID these days? Because I'd been reading earlier in the week that there's a new subvariant of Omicron that's spreading rapidly in some parts of the world, including in Ontario. Uh, last week, the WHO designated XBB 1.16, a variant of interest, because it escapes sort of uh, its ability to outcompete other subvariants for the time being. So here we are with another new variant out there. And we've been talking about booster shots and there's been some debate about masking. You know, mandates have come down in a lot of health settings as well. So we figured, okay, it's April 27th. It's my mom's birthday. Uh, for the past little while, I've always associated this time of year. And this is not, obviously we like to celebrate my mom's birthday, clearly. And she's in Ottawa tonight. So we, we chatted earlier and I wished her a happy birthday. We're not together this year. But it got me thinking back to this year three years ago, or this day three years ago, when everything had changed so drastically and so quickly that I often think of this day as being that first time where, you know, we couldn't do the things that we normally would have done, right? We couldn't be together for her birthday. Um, So we thought we'd check in with Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's been a regular guest on the show. He's a staff physician at University Health Network in Toronto, a clinical investigator at Toronto General Hospital's Research Institute, and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. And he's often been on the show to give us updates about what the state of COVID-19 is. And he's back again with us tonight. Dr. Bogosh, as always, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to chat here. Here we are. I mean, I was thinking I was, it's my mom's birthday today, April 27th. And I was thinking back to where we were three years ago today, you know, not even really much more than a thousand days ago and just what, you know, we were all sort of locked down and, and here we are three years later and everything feels like it's kind of gotten back to something like normal, you know, but we are reading about new variants, including in Ontario. What is the status of COVID-19 these days? Yeah. I mean, obviously things are way different now. Most important, it's fair to acknowledge that COVID is still here and the virus is going to continue to do exactly what we know viruses do. It's going to circulate. There'll be periods of time where there's more of it in the community. There'll be periods of time where there's less of it in the community, but there won't be periods of time where there's none of it in the community. And as it circulates, it's going to continue to mutate and we'll see uh, new variants or sub-lineages of, of Omicron. We've been in the Omicron era 
you know, for well, for well over a year now, coming up about a year and four or five months. And we've had various sublineages of this Omicron. Initially, we had BA1, which was a terrible wave, overwhelmed hospitals. It was awful. Uh, but since then, we've had several different waves. You know, you had a BA2 wave, a BA4, BA5 wave. You had an XBB1.5 wave. And none of those were nearly as impactful as prior waves. They just weren't. Sadly, some people got infected. Some people got sick to end up in hospital. Sadly, some people died. You know, and, and that's terrible. And obviously, we need to take steps to protect everybody. But it, it, of course, wasn't anywhere remotely close to what we had seen earlier in the pandemic. And I think the new sublineage of Omicron that's emerging, it's called XBB 1.16. It's in many countries, including Canada. It'll likely be more of the same, similar to prior waves that we've seen over the last year. What are we seeing happen to the virus? Because clearly it's becoming, it's no less transmittable. Uh, it's certainly finding new ways to survive, but it appears to be becoming less and less severe. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that are happening simultaneously. One is that we have a significant degree of population level protection because so many of us have been infected and recovered from infection, and we know that helps. And so many of us have been vaccinated, and many, not all, but many of the uh, an older cohort have also been boosted as well. So, like, our community level immunity is pretty remarkable. It's not a brick wall stopping vir- the virus from spreading, but... It's, it's nowhere near what it was like before. Like, it wasn't that long ago where we saw the virus rip through New York City or rip mm-hmm. through northern Italy or rip through Wuhan or Iran. And we just watched those areas crumble. Like, we watched that crumble. We watched healthcare systems overwhelm. Like, we're nowhere near that now. Not to say Canada's healthcare system is perfect, which far from it. But COVID isn't imploding the healthcare system. It is still putting some stress on an already stressed system. But our system isn't imploding. The other thing to remember, too, it's not just population level immunity. We have over 50,000 Canadians that have died. Absolutely awful. And many of those who died were vulnerable, meaning they were on the older end of the spectrum or they had underlying medical comorbidities. So there's a terrible epidemiologic term. It's called harvesting, but it's basically a survivorship bias. Like the reason Mm -hmm. we're not seeing a ton of deaths these days is because a lot of people who are most vulnerable to this have already died over the last few years. So it's a combination of population level immunity plus sadly, a very significant rate of death among the most vulnerable Canadians. Where, how should we be, be regarding uh, vaccines these days? Because I know for a while, the, the, the idea of getting a booster was quite common. Every six months, every eight months or so, you'd be warned by whomever, perhaps by your local health authority, that the time had come for you to get another booster. That seems to have faded away as well. Where are we at with, with boosters and who should be looking for one if they feel like they need one or want one? Right. I mean, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations has really guided Canada very well throughout the pandemic. They have sane, reasonable guidance. Um, And I think other countries are actually starting to look at Canada's guidance because they continuously get it right, uh, even in a world of uncertainty. The current guidance right now is for those who are over the age of 65 or those with underlying medical conditions that put them at greater risk for more severe infections. Those are people who should be getting a booster this spring, and you get that booster six months after your most recent vaccination or six months after your most recent infection. And, you know, to no one's surprise, those are individuals over 65 and those with underlying medical conditions. Those individuals are overwhelmingly represented in hospital settings and sadly in in deaths. I mean, I mean, if you're a healthy 20 something year old person and you've already had several vaccinations plus recovery from infection at this point in time, 
you don't need a booster. Data changes, new data emerges. We've seen policy change with time. But if the question is spring, who needs a booster? The answer is over 65 and those who are vulnerable. If you're six months out from your recent, most recent vaccine or your most recent infection, it's time. Dr. Bogosh, there's been a lot of talk about mask mandates being lifted in various, especially clinical environments. You know, that debate is still going on out there. If you see it on social media, there's still kind of a back and forth about masks. What should we be thinking about masks these days? Because I see far fewer of them, but I still see them. Yeah, I mean, we're living in an era now where there are few, if any, public health mandates or, uh, related to COVID-19 around the country. I think that's first thing. I mean, we were, and of course, we were in a period of time where you needed a mask in an airplane before or on public transportation in various indoor settings. But but obviously things are different now and, and we don't see many mandates. I mean, maybe too much information, but like I really despise most of the public conversations around masks. I found them politicized, too much ideology going into them and, and people ignoring common sense, science, medicine and basic public health principles. Masks, of course, are an imperfect but helpful tool and they still are an imperfect but helpful tool. We don't expect perfection from any of our tools. So, you know, the fact that masks aren't working 100% of the time doesn't mean we need to throw them away. They will, at an individual level, if you're wearing a mask in an indoor setting, they will reduce your risk of getting COVID-19. Uh, you know, and people say, well, masks don't work. I mean, that's that's not a very fair statement because I think a lot of people confuse individual level protection with population level protection. And with given enough time, and, and, and at a population level, yeah, masks certainly take an edge off of a wave and they might be able to blunt a wave a little bit, but they're not, it's not enough to stop a wave. And we know that, and we've known that since the very beginning, but that doesn't mean masks don't work. I mean, if you are, for example, an individual and your goal is I don't want to get COVID or another respiratory viral infection, and you put on a mask in an indoor setting that has other people in it, yeah, you, you'll reduce your rate, uh, your risk of getting COVID-19. You absolutely will. But as you point out, we're, we're seeing fewer and fewer masks uh, being used. We still see some masking and, um, on uh, public transport. I still see some there, and I, I yeah. take public transportation from time to time. But yeah, I mean, at, at this point, without mandates, this is certainly an individual decision now. One of the things I've noticed, too, is that there are those who perhaps have members of their family who are who are immunocompromised or vulnerable, who are really upset about the fact that, uh, that the mask mandates have started to really be lifted from just about everywhere and upset that, that they feel somewhat abandoned by it. It's kind of the reverse of what we were seeing before was sort of this very vocal minority that really didn't like masks and were said all kinds of things about them, as you were pointing out. And now we have a very vocal minority who are like, wait a second, we're not safe. We don't think we're safe yet. So why are you getting rid of these mandates now? I'm not going to pretend to have my finger on the pulse of 39 million Canadians, no, true enough. but I think people vote with their feet and we've had three years of masks. People know what they are. People are choosing not to wear a mask when the mask mandates are lifted. Right or wrong, that's what people are choosing to do. One way masking isn't useless. Okay, If someone is concerned about COVID-19, one-way masking still helps reduce risk. So if someone doesn't want to get it for a thousand good reasons, one of them being they don't want to bring it home or they don't want the acute or chronic manifestations of the virus, you can still put on a mask. You absolutely can. I think you also raised another good point about healthcare settings, and that's a hot-button issue right now. Mm -hmm. And while many hospitals and healthcare systems are lifting mask mandates, if you read the fine print or if you see what's actually being done, many, not all, but many of them are actually maintaining masking 
in, in uh, patient encounters where, where patients are being seen. If you're on a nursing ward or in a clinic or on the hospital wards, that's uh, you, you still need to mask in those settings. Again, this is my personal bias, but I think that's a very reasonable thing to do at this point in time. Um, but not all places are doing it. I'm in Ontario and most places are doing that now. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Sometimes, I mean, as we've noticed all the way through the mass debate, uh, a lot of the fine print gets lost in 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 the yelling, right? That's what that's what happens. That's a, and thanks for clarifying that. As we look forward through the summer, I, I suppose we're going to have a summer much like we're having a spring, where, as you mentioned off the top, COVID is everywhere, but we're simply not seeing the same impact of it. It is not as severe a COVID, although albeit still quite virulent. It's not as severe a COVID as we had as we were talking about two three years ago. Yeah, I think that's that's the case. And, you know, people are still going to get infected. And sadly, vulnerable people are still going to get sick and may even end up in hospital and, and sadly may succumb to this illness. It's 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 going to continue to happen as this is not going away. We can create safer indoor spaces to re- at least reduce the risk of this happening. Right. We can have better ventilated indoor spaces. I think like we talked about, you can mask in, in settings where there's high risk individuals, especially in hospital settings where, where uh, you're seeing patients. I think that's, a, that's pretty pretty reasonable to do. And we'll watch this virus ebb and flow as it will continue to mutate uh, over time. But yeah, I mean, most people who have stepped outside of their basement over the last year have recognized that, yeah, I mean, life has largely returned to normal. The virus, of course, has not gone away. And, you know, in the absence of massive public health mandates like mask mandates and stay at home orders, you know, our healthcare system is not getting throttled. I should also point out that our healthcare system getting throttled is not the only metric of success, but it is a very important metric of success. Some people might have short memories and forget that we ran out of ICU space. Okay? Yes. We had tents set, out of, set up in front of hospitals. We were bringing in. Uh, healthcare providers to different provinces to help out. Those left some pretty deep scars on, uh, well, not just the general population, but people who are working in healthcare. And knowing that we're not going to see that anytime soon is very relieving. That doesn't mean we need to be complacent and say, ah, COVID schmovid. Like, of course not. Still got to take it seriously, but let's not pretend that this is the same infection that it was one, two, and three years ago. Yeah, we can, we can have short memories, can't we? Dr. Bogosh, as always, thank you. My pleasure. Have a great one. UNICEF put out a report earlier this month that talked about how fewer Canadians, and not just Canadians, but all over the place, uh, specifically in, in South Korea and Japan for some reason, but really just about everywhere, fewer Canadians believe in the importance of childhood vaccines compared to before the pandemic. Again, that according to a new UNICEF report that warns about the growing threat of preventable preventable infectious diseases because of lagging vaccination uptake. Now, we know there's a separate issue going on here that in a lot of parts of the world, because of COVID, a lot of kids miss their sort of routine vaccinations. But this is different. This is about attitudes towards childhood vaccinations. Now, while most Canadians, 82%, still say vaccines are important during childhood, that number has dropped more than 8% since the onset of COVID-19. That's what the UNICEF report found. And again, that's not exclusive to Canada. It's happening just about everywhere, Europe, everywhere. We're seeing similar things in sort of so-called Western countries or, you know, so-called uh, developed countries. We're seeing the same sort of uh, drop of about 10%. Now, what does this mean? What kind of 
Is it cause for concern? Tim Caulfield is a professor of health law and science policy at the University of Alberta. He's also author of the fine book called Relax, A Guide to Everyday Health Decisions with More Facts and Less Worries, a frequent guest on the show. Tim, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is, I mean, your Twitter feed is always a really fascinating place to be. Despite how strange Twitter has become these days, you're reliable. Thank you. Um, one of the things that you were talking about over the last week that was interesting was this, these attitudes towards childhood vaccines and just how much they had shifted in many places, uh, specifically Japan and South Korea. And I don't know why that would be, but also here in Canada, this idea that child vaccines are beneficial has started to decline a little bit, which is, which is odd considering all we've been through the last three years. Yeah, it's it's absolutely horrifying if you want to know the truth. I mean, it's really, really depressing numbers. So uh, as you point out, there's been a number of surveys and, and, and a number of you know fairly robust studies that have come to the same conclusion, basically, that uh, vaccination hesitancy is growing with respect to parents and and vaccinating their kids. And, and that is just, you know, horrific news because that's going to lead to deaths. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. It's that, you know, that that's going to kill people. And I I think part of what's going on is the embrace uh, of misinformation. And I want to be really careful here, not to say that every parent that is hesitant has embraced misinformation, but the misinformation is in the ether. We have other studies that have shown, for example, that misinformation about how COVID vaccines will lead to infertility, absolutely not true that that creates this sort of general hesitancy about vaccines. So I, I think that all of the rhetoric that was associated with the COVID vaccine is now starting to spill out and, and have an impact on, on vaccinations uh, more broadly. And you know, just, as I said, just terrible, terrible news. What I found interesting was just how consistent it was across sort of countries in the West, uh, Europe, Canada, America, where you saw sort of an eight to nine to 10 to 12% decline. And then this dramatic drop, I don't know what if that was the methodology, but in Japan and South Korea, the drop was something enormous, like down below 50%. But we're seeing a consistent drop across many different places who would have had different coverage of the, of the pandemic over time, where maybe some of these issues weren't as contentious. Even here in Canada, eight and 10, nine and 10 people got vaccinated. And it's strange to see that dip. And I wonder what could be causing, I mean, you've talked about what could be causing it, but the consistency of it was interesting. That's right. And it is really a global problem. And as you probably know, the World Health Organization, UNESCO, Gavi, they're all banding together right now to try to reverse this trend, you know, they're calling it the the catch up. I can't remember the exact uh, phrase they're using, but trying to reverse this trend. Look, some of it has to do with no doubt down in trust with public health, uh, a breakdown in trust with healthcare more broadly, uh, a breakdown in trust with respect to van- vaccine manufacturers. All of those things are contributing. But you know, I'm getting old and cynical. I think I I know that. Underneath all of that is the misinformation, right, that, that right. spreads about vaccines. And, and I, I think it's really important to highlight because people often raise this, oh, people aren't getting vaccinated because vaccinated they can't trust these institutions anymore. But so much of the misinformation that has been spreading over the last couple of years and really even before the pandemic was about creating distrust for these institutions. So you create distrust in the institutions and then more misinformation spreads and is believed and around and around the cycle goes. And we get to where we are right now. Who benefits, Tim, 
I mean, who? I mean, this is might be a loaded question, but but who benefits from this? I mean, we know who on the on the other side who you know the claims against drug companies and so on. But on 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 the side of, of vaccine hesitancy, I mean, obviously, concern for your children's health is paramount. But but who benefits? Well, it's interesting because uh, if you look at the the and look, really complex question, no doubt. Yes, part of it. Yes. So I'm going to give you an oversimplified response, but I think it's still an important one. Well, if you look at the to- the top influencers in this space, and there's been studies that have done this, and we've you know we've looked at this space ourselves. If you look at the top influencers, e- even as far down as let's say the top 500, and let's and by that I mean people on social media that so you can actually get a metric of you know who's being listened to, whose whose messages are being spread. A lot of them are doing it for money. You know, there's often a financial gain. So they're selling supplements, they're building a brand, or there is a particular ideological agenda at play. Uh, One of the really depressing things that we're starting to see emerge, and there have been a a couple commentaries on this, the degree to which being anti-vax is now becoming part of, you know, an ideological platform. Definitely starting to see that in the United States. Think about DeSantis in Florida. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when that happens, of course, you start to see the belief in this, this misinformation become more entrenched. And it's interesting how you're seeing a bit of a horseshoe with it too, where we normally, you know, it, it's not necessarily one side of an, if you want to look at two sides of an ideological spectrum, which isn't always fair, uh, but that there are many people, people of different political beliefs joining up on this one as well. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And, uh, and I, of course, you know, how do you define, you know, a particular ideological uh, worldview um, as being right or left? I think that's becoming more complicated too, right? But, but, but you, you do see, Strange bedfellows. Can I use that phrase? Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a perfect description of it. I mean, you have like the yoga crowd, right? And you know the the alt right, you know the far right, you know having a degree of con, you know consensus. I hate that word. And, and when you're talking about vaccine hesitancy, but but the, I th- I think it's also really important. I want to go back to that that idea of hesitancy. I want to be careful here because not everyone who holds these views or is hesitant has you know embraced a conspiracy theory or is part of one of these you know the, these echo chambers. But but they're being influenced by their rhetoric emanating from from these communities. And the small good news is, you know, I, I think that that kind of hesitancy is easier to counter. It's it's easier to help inform people and, and point them in the direction of reliable information and hopefully shift their views than it is for those really hardcore, hardcore believers. Right. What do you tell people then? Because I, I guess with all the with all everything that's been out there, I mean, hesitancy for for things is is relatively normal, I guess, and it's still fewer than eight and ten. I mean, it's still fewer than two in ten Canadians feel this way. But what would you tell people then? I mean, uh, clearly a lot of people talk about doing quote unquote doing their homework, but there's a lot of different places to do your homework these days, and you tend to find what you're looking for nowadays. With with childhood vaccination, you know, I think we can be pretty definitive and it's always we have to be careful to be, you know, you don't want to be too dogmatic, you know, because science is always evolving, etc. But we have such a rich, rich body of evidence around childhood vaccinations that we can be fairly definitive, right? You know, look, childhood vaccinations save millions of lives every year. And we're talking kids, right? That You know, one of the single greatest achievements of biomedicine. And, uh, you know, I think that message, we we can't stop hammering away at that truth, that truth, right? Also, I think it's really important for those hesitant parents to, to talk to them, to listen to them, to get a sense of what are their concerns and then point them in the direction of trustworthy sources of information. But as you alluded to already, 
that's because that's more difficult than it was three years ago. You know, you used to be able to say, look at the Public Health Agency of Canada, look at Health Canada, look at, you know, World Health Organizations, but there's a growing cohort of individuals who don't trust those institutions anymore. So yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, this is becoming a more difficult challenge. Tim, supplements are a really interesting one because I know tons of people who buy them, right? And yet time and time again, I read the, like, I'll go and look at these studies and say, how good are multivitamins for you? And I realize... Not really, <laughs> not really. So why are we so, what, what does the science say and why are we so intent on spending money on them? I'm absolutely fascinated by by this topic. It's something, you know, literature I've been following really, really closely for a long time. And our, our team has done uh, interesting, I think it's interesting research on how how uh, supplements are represented in, in the public space. And, and the reality is, and we've known this for a really long time, not a lot of good evidence to support most supplements. And as soon as I say that, people are going to go vitamin D or, you know, there may be situ clinical situations where you need a supplement. Absolutely. If there is a science-informed healthcare provider that tells you you have a deficiency and you need a particular clinical grade supplement, that is very different from the massive multi-billion dollar industry that is selling you useless supplements, expensive pee. Uh, and I agree with you. I, you know, it seems like it's, if anything, despite the scientific reality, it's becoming, it's becoming more popular. And I, I think it's also really important to highlight, there are studies that show, number one, these supplements can do real harm, serious harm, serious harm, liver damage, you know, on and on and on, right? And in addition to that, there are number of studies. One just came out, I'm going to say yesterday, the day before from from the United States about contamination and the fact that what's in these in these products often isn't what's on the label. In part, that's because it's a poorly regulated industry. So look, listen to your healthcare provider. <laughs> Do not listen to the massive supplement industry. And, and if I could say one more thing, I, I am sure. fascinated how how this is one of the reasons it's becoming more popular is it, it seems to be part of this this whole bro tech longevity, you know, optimization movement that we're seeing right now. You know, if you're a billionaire and you take a lot of supplements, apparently you have to tell everyone else else in the world that what supplements you're taking. And that success, seems to be yeah. driving the industry a little bit. The marketing of them is fascinating because when you go anywhere, they're first of all, they're over, they're, they're available to you. You don't need any prescription to buy them. There can't be too much active going on, right? But they've been around they, they've been around forever. And I know tons of people who take them who are otherwise very rational when it comes to scientific issues. Yeah, so so do I. I, I, I and again, I I because I mean, as soon as you talk about supplements putting down, everyone, you know. Oh, yeah. Brings up examples when a supplement is needed. You know, I'm not yeah. talking about pregnant women, you know, no. uh, folic acid, etc. We're really talking about the supplement industry. And I think people know intuitively what I mean when I say that. I, I think there's a, there is this appeal that, you know, if a little bit of something is good for you, then a lot of it is better, right? Of course, that's not how the body works. You know, the body is very finely tuned. It's balanced from a, a biological perspective. But so, but I think that that's one of the people. And the other thing is, I, I, I think people view supplements as kind of insurance, right? Oh, yeah, I'm not getting yeah. en enough. I'm not eating enough fruits and vegetables. So if I have this, uh, but again, that's not really how the body works. And and for most of the supplements, you know, the the actual sort of chemical or that you're you're trying to find, you know, whether it's vitamin C or something else, you're pro even protein. You're probably getting enough in your diet, right? Um, that's not the problem in North America, right? The, those kinds of deficiencies in general. And I want to be careful here, you know, talk to your 
your healthcare professional about possible deficiencies. But I think that that's part of what's going on. And then the other thing that's happening now, very much now, is this longevity optimization kind of rhetoric that we're seeing that you're, you're going to become a better human being. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to grow forever, bigger muscles. Right? You're going to be smarter. You're going to sleep better if you take take these supplements. And often they'll use sciencey words to to back it up. Something I call science exploitation, which we've, we've actually studied at, at at our institute in order to make it seem more legitimate. But it's it's really it's it's just all noise. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can see where it comes from. You know, I also so few of us have family doctors these days. Sometimes I wonder if we're not just doing it because <laughs> it feels like we're we're doing something to, to alleviate, to, you know, trying to to get involved. But um, I, I want before we go, I want to talk about one last because I often watch these science headlines that come by. And the one that linked French fries to, dep- to anxiety and depression got a ton of coverage this week. I, I, it was a study out of China, uh, out of Hangzhou, and, and, and it was quite uh, – I mean, again, it was a big headline one. You, you looked at it. I mean, there's been a lot of skepticism about it, but what a headline. What a headline. What a headline. And, you know, I think I'm a good person to talk about it because believe it or not, believe it or not, I'm not a, a, a French fry lover. I know no. that's hard to believe because it feels yeah. like the entire universe – Loves French fries. I could so do without a good them. objective like the, take on I like, this. I like them sometimes. I like them sometimes, but I could live without. Yeah. It's a great example of correlation causation, right? Mm-hmm. I think a bunch of things are going on in this. First of all, you know, it's a, the correlation causation, you know, the correlation of eating French fries w- with depression or even, you know, anything else that doesn't prove that it caused the phenomenon, right? But the other thing I think is a great example of is that, you know, sensational headlines matter. And there's studies that back that up and no surprise, right? Sensational headlines matter. And we see that all the time in the field of nutrition. You know, coffee is good for you. Wine will make you live longer. You know, coffee kills you on and on and on, right? So those nutrition sensational headlines work. Sensational headlines matter. Yeah, we're not going to stop seeing them. I just, you know, I just hope people don't read the headline and think, oh, I can't eat French fries ever again because of this. You know, there are many other reasons not to eat too many fries, but I don't think uh, I don't think anxiety is probably probably one of them. Tim Caulfield, as always, thank you so much. Real pleasure. We're going to talk about emails this uh, half hour and how you treat your digital life. Are you a cluttered digital person or are you a clean digital person? Are you the Marie Kondo of digital or are you, you know, something off or someone messier than that? (laughs) I'll leave it there. Um, We've had some texts on this these days. Uh, I was just at a retailer and was asked for email to receive loyalty points. I missed out due to no email. So some people still don't have email, which is fine. It's not a bad thing. Here's why we're talking about this today. It's actually, it's, it's, it's a political story. I won't get too deep into the politics of it or into the accountability of it. It was more the admission that I found really interesting. Um, I, as I said off the top of the show, I'm one of those very Marie Kondo type email people. I clear it out every single day, uh, partially because of the job that we do. We're, you know, you're trying to book interviews, you're trying to communicate with people and you want to be quick if they say yes, right? Um, which is how this works. If someone says, sure, I'll be on your show right away. You're like, great. What time before they, uh, before they change their mind? <laughs> that's, that's not actually the case, but you know what I mean? Um, I mentioned this again because of these surprise revelations at a parliamentary committee in Ottawa yesterday. The Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration is looking into some of what went wrong when trying to help Afghans flee Afghanistan in the lead up to and after the fall of Kabul in August of 2021 and the return of the Taliban to, to power. Now, the details get a bit convoluted, but suffice it to say, a Canadian senator 
was sending out what turned out to be unauthorized travel documents that wound up leaving uh, hundreds of Afghans stranded, unable to come to Canada. They thought they had permission. These documents were not, in fact, permission, and they got stuck. MPs yesterday wanted to know what then-Defense Minister Harjit uh, Sajjan knew about the whole affair, especially since it turns out his former chief of staff had apparently been communicating with said senator and offering templates of those exact forms. So they wanted to know, well, if this was going on, what did you know about it? To which he said, well, I wasn't aware of what was going on because I hadn't been checking my email at the time. So Saskatchewan Conservative MP um, uh, questioned him, Brad Redekop questioned him further about that. To be honest with you, running when you're running an operation like that, so you don't have time to check your emails. I'm focused on, we run a very strict, uh, uh, what we call uh, a battle rhythm, our briefings from phone calls, secure phone calls, to making sure that the intelligence uh, that is coming, we're up to date in the appropriate decisions. So emails that, that didn't factor into what you were doing? Uh, the No, right now, is if the way I look at it from emails, I did not have time to look at uh, emails at that time. Right. So he wasn't reading his emails and it turned out he didn't go back to look over those emails even afterwards from August and September of 2021. So if you're trying to get a hold of Harjit Sajjan, maybe, you know, pick up the phone, don't send an email. Putting that all aside, all this stuff aside, it got me thinking about emails and email management because as a person in position of authority, as a leader, let alone a defense minister during the fall of a country where Canadian troops had been on the ground earlier for years, uh, would you just ignore your email inbox altogether? Maybe you would. So we thought we'd find out more about how leaders treat their inboxes and whether ignoring emails altogether is normal or okay. Joining us to help us do that is someone who knows this stuff inside out. Claire Kumar is a professional organizer and executive coach. She's host of the Happy Space podcast. She knows all about digital spring cleaning, which we will talk about. But first, uh, Claire, welcome. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. So managing email, I know for, you know, we, I think we've all worked for leadership over, over the years. You work with leadership. Managing email is a challenge if you're at the top. I get that. But, uh, but how much of a challenge is it and how often do leaders that you work with just ignore email altogether? Well, I don't know that anyone can choose to completely ignore it. They really need to be systems in place to triage all the incoming information. And I, 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 like to point out, the Queen had her red box brought to her every morning, and I was reading about it. In 2015, they tried to shift it to a digital solution, but she was like, no way, I'm going to continue with this this process that is working. And I think what we saw was a, a lack of a system to set up the minister for you know, being really on top of all the information that he needed to be aware of. Clearly, this is something that was important and that was perhaps not shared, perhaps shared, I don't know. And uh, I think I did not check my email is not really a great excuse. No, I mean, you. I think what we think is that there is someone else, perhaps, maybe you don't check your emails, that's fine. Maybe CEOs don't check their personal email accounts all the time, but somebody is, <laughs> somebody is, somebody out there Yeah, there has is. to be a triage um, function happening. But the other thing that I'm noticing technology, which is making it more difficult, I have, I have an assistant, and if I want to delegate things, even when he goes in to access information, I'm tied to my phone to authorize the access for him to access certain systems. So technology is actually driving us to be tethered to our phones more than I would like. There, you, you can't really delegate effectively. 
No, and, and and I was I was sort of I don't want to divide up the world into different kinds of people, but there are those who are very diligent with email, and those who aren't. I mean, I know people who have thousands of unread emails. When I when I look at their phone, even across the table, and I see sort of twenty one thousand unread messages, it it, 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 it it I get a bit uncomfortable. I'm like, wow, well, can I just thing. go in there and delete all those for you? Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, I will confess, I am one somebody who finds deleting quite tedious. And since storage has become fairly inexpensive in the scheme of things, I think what you really need to do is pull out what's important. That needs to be your primary goal. I've, I've given workshops around productivity and email management, and I've seen the people who have an inbox zero mentality get twitchy after a couple of hours in a meeting where they're not on their phone triaging those messages as they come in, and they're getting nervous, like, I know my messages, they're piling up, and I'm really suffering some anxiety because I know I've got to go and attack that. So I think finding your peace with a system that actually highlights what's important to you and pulls that forward, that's the real priority. Yeah. I, I mean, and these days too, I mean, I was in an office environment, a different one from this one at the beginnings of the pandemic. And we had, I mean, we were all working from home and then you had, you know, you had teams, you had email, you had texts, you had all this stuff coming at you and you were trying to figure out how to manage it. So I can see in the case of, of, um, a, you know, a, senior, a minister, a senior minister in government mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. checking their individual emails would become something, uh, that would be left to somebody else to do. And maybe they wouldn't do that themselves. It was just odd to hear hear someone in that position admit to it, I think. Well, I, I think so. I think I was, I was surprised uh, to read that headline as well, especially when we've had other leadership being on Twitter at all, night of, all hours of the night. So there are sure. definitely different leadership styles and habits when it comes to communication. So I think one of, the, one of the big things I would advise is a signature which guides people with some expectation of your availability and responsiveness. Yeah. So, so you establish a pattern, essentially, that, that, these, that these messages may matter and you need someone to dig through them to make sure they do. Um, it, when you work with individual leaders, uh, whether they be CEOs or others, what is their attitude towards communication? Because what I found interesting is that stuff like email and, and Teams and all those different devices, they democratize communication in a way that that CEOs who come from an old school, say, won't have been used to. They won't have been used to being able to be reached so easily. I mean, I can usually guess people's emails address no matter where they work and send them emails. And you you weren't able to do that in the past. It's true. It's true. We do have more access and we need, therefore, to have our own systems in place and even invitations to guide communication to where we want it to be, right? So uh, even in preparation for this, we were using email and text. And the text is really, I think, great for... Uh, quick messages to to say, go check my email for the detail because right. I don't want to type out great text on my phone. I'm just not of that generation. I'm happy with a keyboard. But you know what? Preferences are very, very personal. I say productivity is personal. And what I would say can be generalized is people to think that, gosh, the way I work is so good. I think you should work that way too. <laughs> and <laughs> unfortunately, that doesn't always hold true. So Often when we're managing up, we have to think about the preference of our, of our leader and what they will respond to. The same way we have to think about our clients and the way they are um, seeking to be in communication. 
Yeah, it's become quite the guessing game, hasn't it? In in many ways, trying to figure out how someone wants to be communicated with and what the best time to send emails are. Some people will respond to emails at any time of the day, really. And other people are absolutely steadfast about, listen, you know, after five o'clock or after work hours, mm. do not send me an email. Yeah, and I think we all need to be able to send when we want to send and not respond when we don't want to respond. Now, the challenge is when you're a leader, if you're going to send when you want to send and it's 2 in the morning, that's going to set a really horrible example and expectation for people to be messaging around the clock. So I do say when you're in a leadership position to use a delay send and have it have it go in the morning or in business hours so you're not driving an expectation for 24-7 responsiveness. I do think we have still a hustle culture problem and an expectation. And I, and I mean, I credit Amazon and Walmart for their, you know, fantastic delivery and response times in driving our expectation for immediate gratification to extend to communications as well as your latest shopping, um, you know, shopping purchase. Yeah, yeah right? to, and it's I, hard to I, separate I all that stuff. I think we need to yes. slow down. <laughs> Yes, it's 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 not. I mean, we're more than a month into spring, Claire, but it's never a bad time to do a little digital spring cleaning. I was listening to interviews you've given in the past about this. What an interesting concept to sort of clean up your digital life at the same time as you sort of tidy the house for uh, to bring in spring. How do you do it? Well, out of sight is sometimes out of mind, and it can all of a sudden bite you when all of you you look at your computer and you're, you have no storage left, and all of a sudden your apps aren't working. So you want to you want to have some strategies to manage the storage that you have, both the storage that's on your devices and the storage up in the cloud, which is even more ab- abstract. Uh, you have to remember what's where, so to speak. So having a bit of a plan and architecture about what is going to be stored where, so you manage the expense of it as well is is really worthwhile. So a strategy for what goes where, and then what I suggest people do is, you know how you, you have rooms in your home, and in every room you have certain items related to a function? Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing. You had files in a filing cabinet in the days of paper. You want the same thing in your digital storage system. And what I would encourage you to do is if you've got, for example, Google Drive or OneDrive or um, other different cloud storage you want to mimic the same hierarchy so that your brain is really given a tool and doesn't have to think too hard. How have I organized things in this place versus the other? If you can really be consistent, that's going to help you too. Yeah, you're out of sight, out of mind is absolutely correct because now with, with everything stored, I mean, what happens in my case is every once in a while, Apple will simply text me and say, you're out of storage. Would you like to buy right. some more? And of course I say, well, yes, of course I'd like to buy some more instead of cleaning it all up. But I mean, should you do it bit by bit, like a little chunk at a time or should you do it all at once? What What works best? I think it's very much dependent on your personality and your inclination. So my, my, my love doesn't take that many pictures, but he deletes the ones that don't work right away and has a, a small set, subset, and they're fantastic. I take so many pictures and don't take enough time in the moment to do an edit. So I will do batch edits and often by size. So the most material way to clean up something and to get space back is by looking by for size of file. Often it's movies and panoramic pictures, things like that, that have high content, a uh, high, high um, number of pixels. 
And so that way you can can uh, create space rather quickly. The other way you might consider doing it, especially if it's an email uh, clean-out that you want to do, is to go back the same way we would do with tax papers. You would keep them for seven years, and you can go back to seven years prior and just do a mass delete. Now, one of the challenges is that as technology increases, our file sizes increase as we get the latest camera, and it offers, it used to be a one-megapixel photograph, and then it was a four-megapixel photograph. I don't even know what the, the top cameras are offering now, but they can eat your storage up pretty quickly. So it, it may work to clean out old years, uh, or you may need to be more precise and really look for those big files. Yeah, as opposed to arriving at a, at a, at a point where you don't have any more storage and you have to start mass deleting things pretty quickly, right? Which is not really what yeah. you... Yeah, yeah I've been there and it's not fun. It's, it's, no. It's, it's not fun. And I'm, because I'm a podcaster now, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. I, and I also shoot it to video, those files take up a lot of room. So I shoot and I get it uploaded now to Google Drive to get it off my hard drive. And so that I have a backup and it also goes on a separate drive, which is just for storing that. So I have a physical backup should something happen up in the cloud too. Right. So keeping everything nice and orderly and, and so on. And and I guess it's never too late to start, right? I think sometimes it's, you're right, it's so easy with your digital stuff just to ignore it because it just, it doesn't clutter, right? It doesn't really clutter, but it does and it does weigh on the mind. Well, yes. I, I, especially imagine your desktop is not ordered. And if you like a lot of visual stimulation, you might like a very busy desktop. It might give someone else <laughs> a lot of stress. So operate in a way that keeps you comfortable. I always say with, with organization, you want to have an ROI, return on investment. So organize and put as much structure in that helps your brain find things. If you want a great book on, you know, the need for tools to su- support our thinking, Daniel Levitin's book, The Organized Mind, is a brilliant one to help you make, make you feel better about needing organization structure. It's, it's not a weakness to look at, at building these skills. It's actually something when you find the way you like to work and your systems, it's now the foundation for your success. So I, I encourage people to play with what they need in terms of organizing structure to feel good so that you don't get caught in stressful situations and you can kind of move smoothly through your day knowing where things are and where to put them away. That's, uh, that's maybe the, the tedious part for a lot of people is the putting away. Same with laundry. It, it kind of extends to the digital space as well. You can do a lot of downloads, for example, and keep them in your download folder, but maybe they want to go out of your download folder to the actual file where you're going to look for them again. Well, Claire Kumar, thank you so much for your advice on this tonight. Oh, a great pleasure. Yeah, we're going to talk books uh, for the rest of the show. This is a really interesting story. Do you forage for stuff? Now, I remember growing up in Quebec, blueberry season was awesome. Wild blueberry season, wild raspberries, wild blackberries, wild strawberries. We had them all growing. I think all of them. I could be confusing Quebec with I spent summers in other places too, like uh, PEI. My mom moved around quite a bit. So we, uh, but foraging for stuff was always great, wasn't it? Um, and that's the subject of our next conversation. But let me start this way. Again, when you think of a best-selling author, you probably think of someone prolific that you see with books at the airport, right? Like the Stephen Kings, the James Pattersons, the Nora Roberts, page-turning thrillers, sweeping romances, beach books, books you'll find front and center wherever you see books for sale. And how do they come up with all those stories? I was curious. Here's what Stephen King has to say. 
when I'm laying in bed at night, before I go to sleep, I'll tell myself this story. And so at some point, probably nine months after this, because this is what it's like, you know, a little piece of grit and it makes a pearl after a while. You just have to give it time. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't. But a lot of times it does. Great advice if you're creating a story from your imagination, of course. But my next guest is a best-selling author as well. One of his books has been a, been a huge hit in this country since it was released all the way back in 2009. Uh, when I was checking, the last crack, the Globe and Mail's nonfiction Canadian Top 10 was in February, right up there with works from nonfiction of works of nonfiction from folks like Pamela Anderson, Sarah Pauly, Jordan Peterson. He's there too. But he doesn't lie in bed thinking about the idea. He's out foraging. He's out, he's out in nature. That's where the inspiration for his books come from. Andy McKinnon is probably happiest out doing fieldwork in the forests, fields, and swamps of his home province here in BC and elsewhere. Um, and the book The Forest Ecologist co-wrote nearly 15 years ago now and published by Tiny Lone Pine Publishers is called Edible and Medicinal Plants of Canada. And it has sold a lot of copies since it was first released again in 2009, making it a perennial Canadian nonfiction bestseller, if you'll excuse the pun. Uh, so what is it? Well, Amazon describes it as nearly six, you know, describes nearly 600 common trees, shrubs, flowers, ferns, mosses, mosses and lichens that have been used by people from ancient times to the present and features more than 800 color photographs and illustrations. In other words, it's a guide to send you out into nature to forage, essentially. Uh, he's also written other bestsellers. A 1994 one called Plants of Coastal British Columbia has sold bushels uh, over the three decades since it was released. So what is his secret to writing a bestseller? Because I don't imagine it's lying in bed dreaming up a great story. It's going out and finding great stories. Um, Andy McKinnon is a research ecologist with the BC Forest Service. He is also an adjunct professor at the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University here in BC. And he's co-author of the longtime best-selling Edible and Medicinal Plants of Canada. And he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Happy to be here, Ben. Thanks for the invitation. So you're just back from some field work. Uh, what do you do? What, what does, uh, I mean, clearly author is one of your many titles, but what is it that you do day in, day out? And what would field work look like for you? Well, it's different at different times of the year. I am officially retired I'm still involved in a number of different research projects. Uh, I do a lot of teaching, primarily of field courses. Right. And I do a bit of field work in forest and riparian restoration, taking areas that have been logged and trying to return them to a more functional state. And I write things. Yes, you certainly do write things. Uh, you've written, you're a prolific writer, so to speak. But tell me a bit about the inspiration for uh, the book that we're talking about today, of course, the one that's been a bestseller for, uh, for, for a long time now. I have written a number of books about plants, primarily of Western North America, and also a book called uh, Mushrooms of British Columbia for the Royal British Columbia Museum. Uh, but I hadn't written anything that was national in scope before. And there were a number of uh, exceptionally good botanists from different parts of the country who were really interested in putting together a national book on edible and medicinal plants. And so I became involved with a whole team 
like you compared this, it to, uh, to herding cats i think at one point well, that that was one of my roles was uh coordinating people's activities from different parts of the country so that in the end it looked more like a national book instead of six or seven regional guides stuck together how did you do that because it is i mean it's such a big piece of territory that you're talking about. You're talking about very different topography, different climate in many parts of the country. Uh, how did you go about trying to put together a national book about edible and medicinal plants? And then also, I know that you took the the idea of sort of traditional knowledge, but also scientific rigor at the same time. Well, sure. And so we decided how we were going to describe the ranges of the species, both in terms of geography and in terms of ecosystems dividing the country. We had strong contributions from botanists in the Maritimes, Quebec, Ontario, Prairie Provinces, Alberta, Northwest Territories, Yukon, and British Columbia. So there were a lot of really good, really fun people involved. Uh, in terms of deciding which plants to include, uh, it's a mix of plants that we knew from ethnobotanical studies, studies of the traditional use of plants, had been used in some cases for millennia right. as uh, edible or medicinal plants. We also included a lot of plants that are used today for food and medicine, and uh, oftentimes those are the same plants. But if they're used, if they're widely used today, some of the plants have Western medicine clinical trials behind them. And then it's a question of how you balance traditional knowledge from thousands of years versus a more recent use that is documented by what we hold as the standards for Western medicine and how you can express those together. Yeah, I mean, was it an instant success? I know, I know, there's a lot of interest out there in discovering more about, you know, what it is that's growing all around us. I feel sometimes like we, for a while, we lost touch with that. But there seems to be a lot of interest these days in edible and medicinal plants growing in and around us, whether it be in the restaurant industry or just people in general. Was it an instant success back in 2009? It was. It sold well from the beginning. Right. Things seemed to really pick up when the pandemic hit. And I think that an awful lot of people were spending a lot more time outside. And there was an interest in plants that could be gathered for food and medicine. And so the sales ticked up during the pandemic and don't seem to have let back down since then. As far as I'm concerned, whatever is required to get people interested in the natural world and natural history is great. It's unfortunate that in this case, it might have taken a pandemic <laughs> to, to appreciate what's in your own backyard. I know you don't get royalties for this. If listeners are curious, it is really about the honor of sharing this knowledge that you've built up over many, many, many years. The knowledge that you and many others have built up over many years, building on the knowledge, as you mentioned, that's been built up over millennia. I, I think a lot of the authors involved with this and some of the other books just like sharing their their love of the natural world with other people. And I very strongly believe that if you want to get people interested in protecting the natural world from human depredations, 
that you have to begin by getting them interested and enamored with it. Uh, and then you can move to conservation. Yeah, I, I'm look, I look forward to speaking about some of what's in the book, some of your favorite things. In fact, one of them I know came up on another, in another conversation last week. Uh, but what's the reaction been like? You must get a lot of feedback from people who find wonder, wonder, wonder and knowledge within the pages of this, because I know it's, 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 it's both illustrated and informative. We hear from a lot of enthusiastic readers, and it's very heartening to get that kind of feedback. Uh, one of the nice things about it is we hear from readers of all ages, and I love hearing from kids who have developed an enthusiasm for plants and the natural world through some of the things that we've written. I think the idea, the concept of free food is appealing to everybody. Yes. But it, it also brings a really nice seasonality for a lot of people. And I know there are kids out there, kids that are friends of mine, that are always keen for springtime because the nettles will be out. We were talking about nettles before, the stinging nettles. And it's interesting because it came up in a conversation I was having about a week and a half ago about food, about things that Canadians eat. That's, you know, sort of the wonders of nature, what we can eat in the spring. And stinging nettle pesto came up. And so when I was reading about your love of the stinging nettle, it came up as well. What is it about the plant that is uh, so captivating? Well, there's a lot about it. It's a remarkable plant and can grow in great abundance in the right spots. It's easy to gather if you take precautions so that you don't get stung by the plant. Uh, When you cook it up, it's very much like spinach to my taste, uh, only more delicious and more nutritious. So it's a a magnificent wild green, and you can use it in pesto. Of course, I like making spinacopita with it. Wow, uh, really? Okay. Yeah, with, know, with any, filo anything, pastry. Yeah. Oh, sure. Anything that you, uh, you use spinach for, you can use nettle for, and it will be better. And it's a plant that's been used worldwide in the Northern Hemisphere for, for millennia. Uh, the word... Nettle, in fact, comes from the same root word as the word net. Certainly in parts of Canada, uh, nettle was used as a source of fiber and was used for making nets for fishing and uh, ropes for uh, general use. Uh, and you're a big fan of the of bogs, I was also reading. I don't know how to quite explain that, but uh, I mean, bogs are so rich with stuff, but you don't ne- necessarily always think of of finding food in them, do you? Well, no, but if you pay attention, they're good places to look for edible and medicinal plants. Bogs are a very distinctive form of uh, wetland. Um, So there are bogs and swamps and and fens and and marshes and lots of different kinds of wetlands. A bog is a nutrient-poor, low-pH wetland often dominated by peat mosses. And uh, if you go into bogs, you'll find a lot of plants that you won't find anywhere else but in the bogs. And some of them are very good edible plants. Uh, Labrador tea is one that's widely used. I have lots of friends who go and gather bog cranberries, which are a smaller native version of our cultivated cranberries. 
and to my taste i think they're they're better they taste better they're uh, the flavor is more intense. You might make a comparison with a wild strawberry and a California strawberry, say. Oh, really? So the wild what... strawberry is much smaller, but it's got way more flavor than a California strawberry. And it's the same with the bog cranberries. They're smaller than the commercial cranberries, but awfully tasty. You know, you've done this for, for a long time, I know. Have you noticed, are you encouraged by the fact that a lot more people seem to be looking out uh, at what's growing around them and finding, sharing your interests, really? I would say yes and no. Yeah. I was. That's <laughs> it, what I was getting at, because sometimes it, it, too much know, of a good uh, thing, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking now of, of the, the book, the Royal BC Museum Handbook, Mushrooms of British Columbia. Yeah that uh, encourages and supports a number of people who like to go out foraging for wild mushrooms. And it simply means that there are more people looking in some of the same spots that I'm looking for wild mushrooms. Right. Sure. Um, uh, sharing, but, knowledge uh, can, sharing knowledge can be great and dangerous, right? Well, sure. But, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, on environmental initiatives and with conservation there's immense value in having people value wild places for whatever reason. It may simply be for their existence. It may be for wildlife habitat. But for some people, it will be for foraging edible and medicinal plants. And if that's what it takes to help with conservation efforts, then I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice a few plants or a few mushrooms to other collectors. Right. And it's good to have the guide, too, because as we've seen, I mean, I'm out in, out in BC as well. Every year there are sort of um, the odd story about about mushrooms that where, where there, you know, people make mistakes and so on. So it's nice to have a guide as well. I think it gives people confidence uh, that what they're looking for and what they're gathering is not going to harm them, too. I think it's, a, it's certainly a, a good thing to have along with opportunities to get out seeing the natural world with people who know it well. And one of the nice things, Ben, about uh, natural history guides, like some of the plant and mushroom guides that I've been involved with, is that they can have a, a much longer shelf life than the newest Dan Brown thriller, let's say. <laughs> True. Uh, so you can, if a new mystery novel comes out and it's been around for a couple of years, then the bookstores will sometimes start putting it on the remainder table, you know, that yeah. half price. Whereas something like edible and medicinal plants of Canada, uh, or for example, the plants of coastal British Columbia, uh, which uh, I know a number of people on the coast here have in their bookshelf, uh, came out in 1994 and still sells well now practically 30 years later. At the risk of a terrible pun, Andy, your your books are evergreen, right? <laughs> <That's> what... <laughs> that, that is a, a terrible pun indeed, Ben, but thank <laughs> you. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they you know, they are different from most other types of books. Well, certainly a lot of Canadians over the years have gotten great use out of edible and medicinal plants of Canada. Andy, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much, Ben. It was fun being here. <laughs> This is we're going to speak to another author this uh, for the rest of this hour uh, before Shane Hewitt of the Shift joins us a little later on, and this is a really interesting story because I grew up in Montreal as I've mentioned probably a few times in the past, 
um, and was not completely, you know, other than just a bit, not much aware of Montreal's role during the U.S. Civil War. Um, part of the interest in this was rekindled, so to speak, in 2017. Here's an idea. This is just the sounds of it, but here's an idea of why. That was the sound of a plaque dedicated to the president of the Confederate States, Jefferson Davis, coming down off the walls of a, the outside wall of a department store in Montreal in 2017, 2017. It's only about six years ago, not even yet. And again, it's not often that stories about Canada and the U.S. Civil War emerge, but this one did back in 2017. There were questions raised about why was there a plaque on a downtown department store building honoring Jefferson Davis. It turned out, of course, he was the president of the Confederate States from uh, 1861 to 1865 uh, when when the Confederacy was defeated by the Union Army under Ulysses Grant. He, in May of that year, um, he spent... Uh, He was arrested not long after the Confederates surrendered and charged with treason, put in jail. After he was released, he spent some time in Montreal because his family, he'd sent his family to Montreal during the war. That plaque was put up many, many years later in the 50s by a U.S.-based group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy and stayed there until it was taken down in August of 2017. That group certainly was trying to change the narrative about the Civil War. And it came against a backdrop of of all those Confederate monuments in the States being taken down as well. But it was also a reminder that Canada had a more complicated role in the Civil War. I mean, it wasn't Confederation hadn't happened yet, but we had a more complicated role in the Civil War than perhaps we're told about often. Um, as the forward to my next guest's new book, um, he says, Canadians take pride in being on the, quote, good side of the American Civil War, serving as a haven for 30,000 escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad. But dwelling in history's shadow is the much darker role Canada played in supporting the slave South and in fomenting the many plots against Abraham Lincoln. For example, Lincoln's assassin, the actor John Wilkes Booth, spent time in Montreal only months before the president was killed. The city was compared to the author, Julian Scher, who I'm about to speak to, compares the city to a Casablanca, a den of spies at the time. It was also used to move money around uh, and in support of the Confederacy. Uh, again, Julian Scher, investigative journalist, points out that Canada was still part of the British Empire and nominally neutral during the Civil War, as was England. And this enraged the Lincoln government because, it, in fact, it meant that England and Canada were giving equal weight to the legitimate Union government and the breakaway Southern Republic. Worse, he says... It tacitly gave legitimacy to the slave states. It also meant that Confederate agents were free to operate in Canada as they did. And prominent members of the Canadian elite helped uh, the Confederacy as well. So with more on all of this is Julian Scher. He's an investigative journalist. His new book is called The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln. Julian, thank you for your time. Oh, great to be here with you. Tell me about the inspiration for this book, because it feels like when if you ask, it seems to me, if you were to ask me, for instance, about what is Canada's role in the Civil War, I'd say, wow, you know, we were the we were the North Star, as you pointed out. But it's far more complex than that. It is. I think most Canadians like you and me, uh, when we think about the 
the Civil War, we assumed we were on the good side. We were a haven for escaped Black slaves. Tens of thousands made their way to Canada on the Underground Railroad. That's been made famous in books and movies. We had abolished slavery in the 1830s because we were part of the British Empire. But what I discovered digging into this book is that there's a dark side that is much more important for us to realize that, in effect, while tens of thousands of ordinary Canadians uh, fought on the Union side and supported Lincoln, most of our establishment, the newspaper publishers, the politicians, the bankers, the church leaders, were anti-Lincoln and sometimes ferociously and actively pro-slave South. And, and that's a dark side of our history that I think we need to draw some lessons about. What was the inspiration for this, Julian? I mean, uh, we both grew up in Montreal, and I, a lot yeah. of Montreal features quite prominently in this book, uh, specifically yeah. old Montreal. You'll never walk through old Montreal the same way again. Looking the same way, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Uh, how, um, did you, how did I, you come to it? I've always been fascinated by history. I graduated studying history at McGill, and I knew I wanted to become a journalist, but I knew we had to understand Canada's past to figure out where we were going. So, you know, I've done books on Stephen Truscott's wrongful conviction, on the history of the Ku Klux Klan in Canada, on the, the history of the biker gangs. And so it wasn't that much of a stretch to look even farther back into the origins of our country. I mean, Canada was born in 1867, just a couple of years after the, the Civil War ended. If you walk down, as I did uh, when I was studying history back, I'm afraid to say, in the 1970s, and on the wall of the Hudson Bay department store, there was a plaque to Jefferson Davis, the president of the slave state, honoring him. And I remember thinking, why is there a plaque to the leader of the slave South in my city? And what's it still doing here more than a century and a half after the Civil War? As I later discovered in, in writing this book, Jefferson Davis came to Canada after the war Jefferson Davis was hailed as a hero here, and he came here, as we can later discuss, because he knew Canada was not just a haven, but a base of operations for what, in effect, were terror operations that uh, Davis's government carried out against Lincoln. A bit of a, of a shocking revelation, and it's one of many that I, I try to reveal in the book. Yeah, the, the plaque only came down, I think, in 2017, right? I mean, it's thanks, thanks for... I must admit, and we're, we're kind of jumping ahead of ourselves, yeah. but it gets to the relevance of why we need to study this history, because in 2017, which, you know, just a few years ago, Confederate statues were falling all across the United States as there was a big upheaval, Black Lives Matter, and, and, and the history of racism and trying to deal with the legacy. And I remembered the plaque. I was working for CBC in Toronto at the time, and I called my daughter, who was working at the CBC newsroom in Montreal, well, right. where I had started. And I said, you know, with all the stuff going on with Confederates in the States, you should check if that plaque that I used to see is still there. Well, sure enough, CBC checked it out. That day in August 2017, the Bay took the plaque down. And there's a photo of that in my book. So it's interesting because like, it took till 2017 for a major department store in Canada to take down a plaque that honored the leader of the slave South. So it shows that the legacy of the Civil War is, is still with us. And more importantly, and that's what we can discuss, you can't just take off a plaque and think that the history has been wiped out, right? We need to 
uncover and talk about some of those dark secrets that have been buried in our past. Yeah, I guess we can rewind then 160 years back mm -hmm. to the 1860s. And you described, and this is one of those, uh, this, these descriptions that, that conjures up a lot of imagery for a lot of people. You described Montreal as sort of the Casablanca of its time yeah. during the height of the Civil War, where essentially, uh, you know, the, the, the Confederate side had decided to establish a bit of a beachhead in, in Canada, Montreal specifically, to try to continue its fight against the union absolutely it's 1864 we're in the third year of of the war and for the first time the confederates are beginning to lose it the tide is beginning to turn they're desperate they're losing ground they're losing men they're losing money there's even starvation and they decide jefferson davis gets a million dollars which today would be something like you know i don't know 16 to 18 million dollars um, in money set aside by the confederate government foreign secret services and much of that will end up in canada i talk about a bank account that was set up in one of the banks in montreal that in effect became a money laundering operation and the bank accounts you could see the numbers it's like you know over six hundred thousand dollars uh, which would be many, many millions today, was used to finance terror operations, attacks on banks, attempted arson in New York, all kinds of plots we can we can talk about. So Montreal became this Casablanca. The biggest hotel in what was then British North America was called the St. Lawrence Hall, a beautiful three-story building which still exists today in old Montreal. And it was just not with Confederates. There were so many spies, the, the owner of the hotel, a man named Henry Hogan, talks about having a peephole in his office so he could kind of look at the action, you know, in the lobby. Uh, you were talking a bit about how Canada served as, or Montreal served as a bit of a den of spies back then. And Wilkes Booth was, was in Canada too, a name that we would all have recognized, would have recognized then. And of course, everyone recognized a few years later. Absolutely. John Wilkes Booth would become Lincoln's assassin, the most famous assassin in history. He will kill Lincoln in April 1865. Let's go back a bit. It's October 1864. Booth was kind of like the Brad Pitt of America, right. like, like a young, handsome star. There were reports that women literally would try to tear off his clothes. You know, um, he was a famous actor along with his two brothers. He hated Lincoln. He was a strong supporter of the South. And he begins to plot, and we know this from testimony later that came out in trials and his own words, he wants to kidnap Lincoln. That will eventually turn into a murder plot. So he comes to Montreal in October 1864. And why does he come to Montreal? Because that's where Confederates are. That's where you could meet openly with Confederates and plot and get money. He goes to the St. Lawrence Hall, that hotel we were talking about. The owner, Henry Hogan, who, who calls, who's a genial, most gifted man, gives him room 150. And Booth is seen playing cards with Confederate agents and leaders and devouring news. One of the news stories he's reading is he arrives a day after the most daring raid that the Confederates had pulled off, a gang of soldiers had snuck into a small town in northern Vermont, kind of dressed as Canadian tourists, hung around, and then, wow, one day they stormed the town, they robbed three banks, steal a quarter of a million dollars, which is worth millions more today, kill an innocent bystander, escape dramatically back to Canada. They're captured 
put on trial, and Booth is reading all this in the newspapers, they will be acquitted on a technicality. But the Montreal police chief is found to have met with Confederate agents, some of the same people Booth was hanging out with, and arranges to hide them they had stolen in a bank next to the courthouse. And the moment the Confederates are acquitted, before there's even a chance to rearrest them, they race to the bank and effect steal the money the second time. The police chief is forced to resign. So that's the mood of spying and intrigue that Booth comes to. Right. He arranges to go to the same bank uh, that was a money laundering center for the uh, Confederates and gets a kind of traveler's check uh, and tells them, you know, I'm going to be running the blockade. That's the, you know, the the line that the Union had put up to, to blockade the South. No, don't worry. Nobody could use this money but you. And that traveler's check, that bank draft would be found on his body um, when he is killed 12 days after from killing uh, Lincoln. But here's the most dramatic point. He's at the uh, the hotel. If Montreal was was Casablanca, then Rick's Cafe, if you want, was Dooley's Bar in the Lawrence Hall. And one evening, John Wilkes Booth, one of the most famous actor, walks in and starts playing pool with the Quebec billiard champion named Joseph Dion. And in fateful words that will have huge meaning in a few months, he boasts that it doesn't matter. Lincoln is up for re-election in a few weeks. And he tells his, his pool partner, Abe's contract is up. His goose is cooked. And his contract later, is up. His goose is cooked. Wow. And a few months later, that's exactly what will happen. We're talking about Canada's role in the U.S. Civil War. We were going back 160 years in a new book from investigative journalist and author Julian Scher. It's called The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln. We often think about Canada as being that North Star, the place where freed slaves came on the Underground Railway, for instance, and that Canada's role in the Civil War was at best uh, benign or at least neutral, uh, or at, at least neutral, and at best that we were you know, a supporter on the side of the union and, and helping uh, freed slaves find new lives here. The truth is far more nuanced. The truth is in many ways much uglier. And we've been talking about the role of Montreal as sort of the Casablanca of its time where a lot of Confederate money and support uh, came to plot and so on quite freely, quite openly, and how um, the establishment in both Montreal and Toronto and some of it were very pro, pro-Confederacy. Uh, Julian, you've been talking, we've been talked about Montreal as the Casablanca. Uh, Toronto had its own its own structure as well. And, and there were certainly some some people within it who were very openly pro-Confederate. Absolutely. And a gentleman named George Taylor Dennison features. George Taylor Dennison was right. a prominent aristocrat, probably one of the richest families. He owned a huge villa that took up most of what is now Western Toronto. He called it Hayden Villa and it he modeled it, uh, he modeled his home after a southern mansion. And he openly said, I am a strong friend of the South. He was a city politician. He was also in the Canadian militia. So he allowed Confederates, encouraged Confederates to stay and hide out in his house at one point when they needed to get a spy back to Richmond, which was the capital of the uh, Confederacy. He arranges to hide him in his house and then comes up with the idea of hiding secret codes in silk so that 
he wouldn't be discovered if he was ever caught, uh, unlike notebooks or, or paper. Um, he will contribute money for an attempt to refit a Canadian boat into a Confederate warship uh, that they hope to rearm and, and put up on the Great Lakes so they could use it to attack the northern cities. And when that plot is uncovered, <laughs> it's hard to believe. But they literally find um, one of uh, Denison's co-conspirators and one of the Confederate co-conspirators with guns and gunpowder and torpedoes in uh, uh, water in his basement in Toronto. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. and then Lincoln is assassinated and the Toronto City Council wants to vote its its uh, condolences. You know, there's black uh, cloth hanging in uh, many of the buildings and People are wearing armbands and in, in sympathy um, with the American people. And George Taylor Dennison III is the only city councillor who uh, votes against, abstains any kind of message of condolence to Lincoln. So Toronto played that dark role. Now, at the same time, and this is where the, the nuance comes in, Toronto and Southern Ontario was home to a large Black population made up of both Canadians who were born here and also Americans who had come here to either escape slavery or escape the, the racism. And there were two doctors who became the first doctors, Black doctors in Canada. One was named Alexander Augusta, and he was an American, a free black who couldn't get into medical school in the States because of racism. So comes to Canada to study at the University of Toronto, will graduate and become Canada's first black doctor. He will mentor a young man named Anderson Abbott, a Canadian born black who will become Canada's first native born doctor. Now, what happens in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation, but what's less well known is at the bottom of the Emanci Emancipation Proclamation was an equally important line that said, from henceforth, Blacks could join the army. That was revolutionary. You're giving arms to Black men. And the minute the Emancipation Proclamation is declared, these two brave Black men from Toronto write to Lincoln and his government asking to become doctors, which are badly needed. And despite some racism and some discrimination, they get accepted and they will serve with glory in the army. Uh, one of them will rise to one of the highest ranks among blacks in the army. And both of them at one point, there's this delicious scene in the book. They're working in a hospital in Washington. The conditions are horrible. Black soldiers, because of racism and discrimination, are dying at a much higher rate um, the medical conditions are horrible, but they do uh, their hard work and they decide one night to crash a party. So they get dressed in their uniform and they make their way into the into the White House and and all heads are turning and they're silence and uh, they go up to Lincoln and Lincoln shakes their hands. And Abbott, uh, uh, this young doctor from Toronto, talks about this and how everybody was aghast but he felt proud being a black man from Canada in his uniform meeting the president. Now, ironically, just a few months later, um, Abbott would be uh, around the people um, when Lincoln dies. And right. he talk about that and he will get a shawl from Mary Lincoln, um, Lincoln's widow, um, that Lincoln used to wear as a kind of thank you. Uh, so, it you know, that's the positive side 
of what yeah, Canada did during so the much. Just, there's quite a bit of Canada interwoven into this story. I mean, we were talking about John Wilkes Booth having been in Montreal in the months leading up to the assass- his assassination uh, of Lincoln. Uh, you mentioned that after the war as well, and this is interesting because it comes back to that plaque we were talking about earlier that was on the Hudson's Bay Building in Montreal up until 2017, commemorating Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederate States, that he would then end up in Canada following the war. So even after the war, there was this residual sympathy for the Confederate side on this side of the border. There was. And and I, I think where the book tries to end is, unlike most wars, typically victors get to write the history of the war, right? Uh, World War II, World War I. But I think the Civil War is one of those rare instances where the losers got to write it. It became known as the lost cause, leading intellectuals, politicians, soldiers from the South, you know, would argue, well, sure, we lost, but we were on the right side. It wasn't really a war about slavery. It was about states' rights. It was glorious. There were there was justice and valor on both sides. And um, one of the the leading Canadian Confederates, a man named Bennett Young, who had led that raid in Vermont and and became a hero to Confederate, stays in Canada. After the Civil War, he will make his way back to the U.S. He becomes a leader of the veterans movement and begins to typify this lost cause. So he helps build monuments to uh, the Confederate cause. Um, he builds, helps organized and speaks in 1914, right next to the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. So we're 1914 now, right? It's like, you know, the yeah, half a century, century. later. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And they build this huge monument to Confederates and the lost cause. Those words are actually inscribed in the monument at Arlington National Cemetery, the main cemetery, U.S. military cemetery. So that's the embodiment of the lost cause. And then Bennett Young comes to Montreal and to Southern Ontario and makes a kind of victory tour. And again, he's he's filled with praise by the Canadian papers. And he talks about let bygones be bygones. Um, but of course, you know, we can't let bygones be bygones. We can't wipe out the past. We can't wipe out the US history of slavery, our history of slavery, uh, the continuation of, of racism. And what I talk about in the book is how the lost causes is still with us. Um, you know, look at the attempts right now in the U.S. Uh, to rewrite history books, to ban talking about racism or slavery in schools. Uh, this was a continuation. You know, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, a pro-Confederate group that put up that plaque for mm-hmm. Jefferson Davis in Montreal, in our country. Well, right after the Civil War, they began a campaign um, to ch- to make sure history books portrayed the South and the slave South in a positive way. And that's the same thing that you're hearing from politicians now in the South who are trying to either ban books or ban certain history classes. So yeah. that's why I think that the book is important today. You know, in, in 2008, a little known senator was running for uh, leadership of the Democratic Party, a man I think Abraham Lincoln would have liked to meet. His name was Barack Obama. Indeed. And in an early speech, he quoted a, a famous Southern author, William Faulkner. And Barack Obama said, the past is not dead. The past is not even past. And I think Obama was you know, trying to invoke the fact that the U.S. had to deal with its legacy. And I think those words speak to us as well. 
Yeah, it feels like our legacy. Now, I'm sure there, there are those who who taken a deep dive into this, uh, the nuances of the Canadian side of all this. But I think in popular culture, we've often thought of Canada as having been a safe haven and not much more. And what you've presented uh, raises some some questions, not only about what attitudes were, were towards the Confederacy then, uh, but how that, that continued, how we ended up with a plaque um, on the Hudson's Bay building still in 2017, how there's a street named after George Taylor Dennison uh, in Toronto, still to this day, I believe. Named, named, well, it's named after the fact it's named family, after right. somebody else, but it it just shows the impact that uh, that his his family had, but also the legacy that we all have to live with. And and you're right. I think it is something that we have to grapple with. You know, it's not something that can just be be put away because there there are lessons to be learned. You know, there's there's this amazing character in the book, a young farm girl from New Brunswick who chafes at the restrictions against uh, uh, women. And so to make her way um, in the world, she disguises herself as a man and becomes a book salesman, makes her way to the States. And then when the war breaks out, and this is uh, her important words, I had to decide uh, what was my role. And she decides to enroll in Lincoln's army, disguised as a man, will carry it out for two years and will become one of the most famous soldiers when she reveals her, her true identity. But I think her words, which side are we on, echo to today. That's a question we have to decide to today. Which side are we on, on the, the battles that are growing right now? Well, Julian Cher, it is a remarkable look at a time in history in this country that I don't think we pay enough attention to. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you so much.